BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. I'm Frank Bruni. And this is The Argument. This week, some complicated questions about the Biden candidacy. He said, she said is one thing, and he said, she said, she said, she said, she said is another. Then, will the coronavirus pandemic bring us socialism, or at least a much sturdier social safety net? Having this come along probably does create, sort of solidify a constituency for social democracy that didn't exist 20 years ago. And finally, a recommendation. But I want to tell you that you can cut your own bangs. Now that he has Bernie Sanders' endorsement, Joe Biden can pivot fully to his general election campaign. But there has been a lot of attention this week to a former Senate aide named Tara Reid, who has accused Biden of sexually assaulting her in 1993. She charges that Biden pinned her to a wall in a Senate building and reached under her clothing. The Biden campaign says the allegation is false. Michelle, you wrote about this recently. What's your take? I mean, in some ways, my take is a muddle, right? Because I come away the whole, from the whole thing with just a lot of doubt and confusion. You know, this is one of those stories that if if the story itself had sort of come to any of these mainstream news outlets, you know, the New York Times, the Associated Press, or the Washington Post that eventually reported on it, they probably wouldn't have done the story. It got smuggled into the mainstream discourse, both by allegations on left-wing podcasts and by kind of questions about why um, the, why Time's Up wasn't taking Tara Reid's case. And slowly there was this drumbeat of, why is the New York Times not reporting on this? Why is the Washington Post not reporting on this? And so, so finally they did report on it and relatively quickly, you know, sexual assault investigations typically take many months. Um, their stories came out about two and a half weeks after the initial allegation. And I think they're all written in a way that forces you to make up your own mind, that says there is some evidence and also some contradictions. And I think I felt like I had to respond because there's been so much trolling of liberal feminists by both the left and the right that says, oh, you know, you believe women except when they're making accusations against Democrats or, you know, you believe Christine Blasey Ford, but you don't believe Tara Reid when there are real, real differences in these two stories. And it's very difficult to write about because I think none of us believe in publicly discrediting someone who makes an accusation of sexual assault against a powerful man. And so you don't want to, you know, sort of pick the story apart. At the same time, I think you have to acknowledge that there are enough red flags that it's not really viable to say, you know, we need to throw Joe Biden over for somebody else, even though a part of me would not mind if we had to throw Joe Biden over for somebody else. 
you made reference to there being differences between this allegation and the one that Christine Blasey Ford made against Brett Kavanaugh. Can you point out some of the key differences as you see it? If Christine Blasey Ford, nine months or however many months before she made these allegations against Brett Kavanaugh, had told a completely different story to journalists and then said, you know, well, I was too ashamed to tell the full truth then. Here's here's the real story. I think feminists might have believed her, but they certainly wouldn't have wanted her to testify in a congressional hearing, right? They wouldn't have made her a cause celeb. They would have sort of seen that having a story with so many ambiguities and so many contradictions would damage the cause of, um, you know, kind of championing sexual assault and sexual harassment victims. To me, it's sort of the same reason that even people who really, really despise Donald Trump, like I do, and think he's a rapist, don't talk very much about this lawsuit um, that was filed and dismissed and then refiled and then withdrawn um, by this anonymous 13-year-old girl who says that Donald Trump raped her um, at Jeffrey Epstein's house. Right. You, so we just I think people kind of see that unlike a lot of the other accusations, that one, it's sketchy. It has too many red flags. So people don't really talk about it. And sometimes I get emails saying, why haven't you said more about this? And sort of that's why I wouldn't put Tara Reid on, on that level. She has more credibility than that. But again, because the story has shifted and then the thing that makes it really tricky is that her public kind of quasi-erotic worship of Vladimir Putin seems really engineered to convince mainstream Democrats, um, fairly or unfairly, that this is um, something nefarious. Ross, do you think the media is showing appropriate hesitation when it comes to Tara Reid or too much? Um, I mean, I guess I will play the right-wing troll for a minute and 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 say that I don't. I don't think I disagree with anything that Michelle said about the reasons to doubt Reed's story. Basically, she did make one allegation that was sort of of a piece with other complaints about Biden that he was too handsy, that he touched her sort of in a inappropriately familiar way, but not a you know not at the level of assault. And then she altered the story, and so she's the only woman out of the group of people complaining about Biden's handsiness to sort of say, no, actually, he assaulted her, he penetrated her, and so on. Um, and that shift and her other reasons that Michelle lists, including the Putin stuff, are all decent reasons not to just sort of assume the veracity of her story. At the same time, you could take a different set, of, you could make a, you know, a somewhat different argument and say there are more reasons to believe elements of her story than there were to believe Blasey Ford's story in the Kavanaugh case, Right. Um, but I think, you know, I, I don't think you can say definitively at all that, you know, there are eight reasons to think that, you know, Blasey Ford is telling the truth and this woman probably isn't. I think they're both highly ambiguous cases. And I don't I think that the the objection from the left and the right that Michelle is describing is sort of a reasonable one. If you have a blaze of certainty, which you really did around the Blasey Ford allegations against Kavanaugh, I don't think you can just say, well, this is a really ambiguous and hard case with with Reed. I think they both either they're both ambiguous or in both cases you should you should err on the side of belief. Ross, the media has certainly treated them differently and since you volunteered to play right-wing troll, if you would, I'd like you to play right-wing troll a little longer. Do you worry 
that news organizations, even including the New York Times, were slow to and have been reluctant to report on Tara Reid because they're trying to protect Joe Biden, because they are so horrified at the notion of Trump's reelection that they don't want to hand any chum over to the sharks on the other side. I think there is a slight element of media bias in play, but I think it's it's a little bit more that, um, you know, the context of a presidential campaign and the context of a Supreme Court confirmation hearing are different. Um, and, you know, our me- new media columnist, Ben Smith, who's already made a name for himself, sort of criticizing the times from within, did a really inter- interesting interview with Dean McKay, um, our editor, where he sort of pushed him on this. And um, McKay basically said, you know, we reported more quickly on some, uh, you know, hard to prove allegations on Kavanaugh because there there seemed to be more urgency because there was a deadline and so on. And I think there's there there's some realism there, right? Like, yeah, if, if you're facing a Supreme Court vote in, you know, in a week versus if you're in the middle of a long drawn out primary campaign, it's okay maybe to wait a little longer and say, well, when we report this, we're going to do, you know, the best and most even-handed job you can possibly do. In that sense, the people who have the biggest objection here are not right-wingers. It's Bernie Sanders fans, right? Because Bernie Sanders did literally drop out of the presidential race in between the time when this allegation surfaced and when the paper of record, that is us, finally did a big story on it. Um, so I, I feel like that's that's where the Sanders people could say, look, this was just as urgent as, you know, in the Kavanaugh hearings, right? There actually was a deadline. It wasn't a deadline for Republicans, but there was a deadline for Bernie Sanders, and he deserved to have this reported on. Um, and especially, and the one thing, yeah, I'll just leave it here, but especially since, you know, with Kavanaugh, there was this argument about, you know, well, you know, he ha- he clearly had a pattern of of drinking and he was in a sort of rowdy scene in high school and so on. But with Biden, there's a pattern, too. It's not a pattern of sexual assault, but it is a clear pattern of inappropriate or behavior that women find inappropriate. And to the extent that that exists, that makes an allegation that goes a little further, I think, maybe more newsworthy than one, you know, dropping out of the blue about Barack Obama or George W. Bush would have been. Michelle, was was there more urgency here than the media showed? Has Bernie Sanders been misserved? Well, I think that to basically say we need to rush out this story because Bernie Sanders might drop out and this might give him a shot would be its own sort of political, right, thumb on the scales. Um, I I don't see how you can have somebody making decisions about the timing on stories like that based on how it will affect one or another candidate in the primary. I mean, I have friends who've done some of these stories, you know, and they take months and months and months, typically, you know, particularly if you really want to nail someone, you know, stories, um, obviously, on Harvey Weinstein, stories on Charlie Rose, at the Washington Post. I mean, these are just incredibly time consuming. And so from my point of view, Two and a half weeks to try to get as close as you can to the truth of what happens is actually pretty quick. Do do either of you think this, if we extrapolate forward, if the state of play regarding Tara Reid's story remains where it is now, do either of you think it's going to have any effect on Joe Biden's election prospects? So my guess is mostly no. You can imagine, you know, Trump trying to make a thing of it, maybe inviting Tara Reid to a debate the way he invited some of the women who had accused Bill Clinton um, 
to his debates with Hillary Clinton. So I imagine, you know, that Breitbart and some other people will continue to exploit it. But again, I think if it's just this one thing out there, um, if there's no pattern and no further corroboration, I think it will probably fade into the background. I thought Michelle's column on this was right on target. And I, I don't mean to be a sort of vacuous cheerleader for the home team, but I actually think the Times handled this very well, very expertly. Um, I think this is a this is a tough allegation um, to deal with because there there has been inconsistency in her story. Um, she was saying one thing a year ago. She's saying something else now. That doesn't mean what she's saying now is untrue, but it does absolutely compel caution. Um, and when I was reading the Times's very long, very detailed story of this, I thought this is exactly what journalism in a circumstance like this should be. In as much as They absolutely gave Tara Reid her full say. They did not seem uh, to be uh, trying to undermine her in any way. They did not seem to be treating her lightly. But they went back to everyone who was referenced. I was really impressed by the stretch of the Times' story where they kind of went person by person through people who had been working in Biden's Senate office at that time, people she says that she relayed her complaint to in real time, and those people didn't just say, I don't remember it. I mean, their denials were strikingly emphatic and strikingly all-encompassing. The the most striking similarity to me is this is something that happened if it happened a long, long time ago. And I think one of the frustrating uh, but immutably true things here is when something is that far in the past, it becomes almost impossible for us in the present to determine exactly what happened. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think that's why people look for patterns. You know, if it's like, he said, she said is one thing. And he said, she said, she said, she said, she said is another. Frank, did you believe Christine Blasey Ford? The answer can be, I don't know. You know, it's, you know I mean, I... Ross, I, 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 can't, um, I can't answer that question, whether we're talking about Christine Blasey Ford, um, or whether we're talking about Tara Reid. I just feel a great sense of humility in terms of our inability to know what's what. Um, I I heard such conviction and pain in Christine Blasey Ford's voice. I've not heard Tara Reid's voice as much. Um, but I'm also in, enormously conscious in these situations that people's reputations are on the line. And um, I get frustrated that we in the media are living in a kind of climate and culture where everyone's supposed to take a side and say, I've, I've made my decision, this person is correct and this person is incorrect. I feel really humble about these things. I just don't know. Okay, let's stop there. Last week we asked how you're interpreting and practicing social distancing in your lives. And here's what you told us. Hi, my name is Michael. The thing I miss most is hugging my grandchildren. If I can't hug my grandchildren, what's the point? Hi, my name is Katie and I live in Portland, Oregon. My housemates and I, the three of us that have jobs, are all essential workers and we're all stuck on public transit. It's not so much that my life and the patterns that I'm living in have changed. It is that I am seeing everyone else's change around me. And there is nothing more terrifying than being on absolutely empty public transit at 8.30 p.m. Hi, Argument. Uh, This is Chris Williams calling from Seattle, Washington, where I am under quarantine with my family. 
But I, uh, I also live in France. I work for a French company and spend much of my time in Paris. I'll tell you the thing I miss the most right now are levis, the cheek kisses that the French use to greet one another. And I could live without the uh, handshake, uh, but I would really miss uh, that particular form of greeting when I'm back in France. Hi, my name is A.K. I work in the healthcare industry in the Bay Area of California. I'm an introvert by nature, but I recognize the health costs of loneliness. I'm both missing contact and also enjoying solitude. I'm catching up on a ton of reading and writing. Thanks partly to Ross, I'm rereading the Bible in its entirety. Hi, this is David Hurwitz. I'm a retired physician, and my wife is a travel agent who is planning on retiring at the end of this year. We're part of a senior scrabble club at our senior center in Calabasas, California. So uh, I have uh, set up a uh, two-computer, two-camera setup where we can play real board games, scrabble with one of the members of the club remotely. And this has been uh, a source of a lot of uh, enjoyment. Hi, uh, my name is Angela Mateo, and I live in Vancouver, Washington, and I've never called into anything. However, I really felt compelled to address Michelle's comments regarding how she's handling this time from today's podcast. Um, uh, first, the guilt that you're feeling regarding how your family has blended with another during this time, in my opinion, is misplaced. Like, this is so, time is so stressful to extend your energy on that guilt is unnecessary, so you need to stop that. Um, the second thing I want to address is your comment about feeling like you're failing on every front. I think you need to be a little kinder to yourself. Listen, being a woman, a wife, a mother, and having a career in the best of times leaves every single one of us feeling like we're failing to some degree in some way. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by Mercy Corps. From war in Ukraine to flooding in Pakistan to earthquakes in Afghanistan, Mercy Corps is delivering urgent humanitarian assistance and long-term solutions to families in crisis around the globe. Visit mercycorps.org slash donate to learn more and support lasting solutions in over 40 countries. That's mercycorps.org slash donate to help build a future where everyone can flourish. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, Plus, This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. The economic lockdown forced by the coronavirus pandemic has put tens of millions of Americans out of work. It has also drawn harrowing attention to how many people lack adequate health care. And many Americans are feeling as vulnerable as ever. Could that open the door to a political philosophy, a word, that has long been resisted in this country? Tonight, we renew our resolve that America will never be a socialist country. That was President Trump during his 2019 State of the Union address. I'm going to start with the least socialist person in the room, Ross. Does this pandemic not argue for at least a little more government involvement in our welfare? I mean, this pandemic has already 
sort of guaranteed an incredibly large government involvement in our welfare, and it's been notable that it's it's happening um, with relatively little, some but relatively little resistance from the official party of free markets. Um, I think there is a there's a general understanding, um, even among Republican politicians, that. Uh, the objections to socialism or the objections to, let's say, massive government intervention don't hold at a moment when the government itself is shutting down the economy and essentially trying to keep it on life support. So in that sense, you know, there are no, there are no atheists in foxholes and there are no small government conservatives um, in the middle of a quarantine and economic lockdown. Um, I think the, the, the real question is what happens afterward. And I guess my sort of broad take is that I think certain kinds of economic interventions will probably find more support on the center-right than previously, but I'm not sure they'll be the ones that we, you know, sort of usually associate with like Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign, Um, meaning I'm not sure that there's suddenly going to be a surge of center-right support for single-payer health care or, you know, major anti-poverty programs. What I do think there'll be support for is a kind of um, uh, greater economic nationalism, where people will say, well, we need to spend a lot more money trying to rebuild our own industrial capacity and make America more self-sufficient and less dependent on global supply chains and so on. And that that's something that also sometimes could be called socialism, but it's a little bit different from um what i think you know jacobin magazine imagines when it imagines the country moving substantially to the left michelle is that assessment too conservative well i think that's an assessment of where conservatives will be right but i think that in terms of where the country will be you know particularly if joe biden um becomes the next president. And if you have a Democratic Congress, I think there will be a lot of pressure for there to be something akin to a new deal, you know, because we're facing a crisis um, akin to, at least in scope, akin to the Great Depression. And so, you know, one thing that this crisis has certainly revealed is the deficits and really absurdity of employer-based health insurance, you know, just a few months ago, people were arguing against Medicare for all by saying, you know, how many people like their employer-based health insurance. Well, you know, when you have, you know, 15, 20 percent unemployment, like who knows what it's going to be, that argument falls a little flat. And so right now, Democrats are talking about basically subsidizing COBRA, but COBRA is such a, you know, kind of a weird, wonky program, and it just... I think the calls to just put all those people on Medicare is going to become much, much louder and much more convincing. You know, similarly, if we end up in a lockdown for the next 18 months or, you know, kind of rolling lockdowns over the next 18 months, I think that the case for a universal basic income, which seemed a little bit pie in the sky just a few months ago, will suddenly seem, you know, not just a matter of practicality, but almost a matter of of necessity because our system is just not set up for people to be able to sustain themselves when they can't work. Ross, is this, is what we're going through right now an argument for universal basic income? No, I don't think so. Um, I I think that it's an argument. I I mean, I I think the, the... 
the UBI argument and the single payer argument, I think, are somewhat different. Um, with I, I think I agree with Michelle that this the nature of this crisis, the combination of mass unemployment with a crisis that requires people to get health care for a, a deadly and devastating disease, um, and the fact that you're trying to coordinate things across multiple hospital systems and you have effectively a much heavier government hand on the medical system than you've had in the past, all of that probably does move the needle somewhat on single payer, not to the extent of, I think, making it politically feasible, but maybe making something like the Medicare buy-in that Joe Biden has been pushing more feasible if you did get a Democratic a democratic Senate. The UBI, it seems to me that what you're getting here is much more of it as an emergency measure, right? And so lots of people who might be against a UBI, you know, in a, in a normal economic moment will say, well, it's okay for the government to write people checks while we're essentially deliberately not running the economy, right? If we don't want people to work, then the main objection to UBI falls away. But then as soon as you get back to work, you'll be back in the pre-existing political and economic landscape, and all the objections to a UBI will come roaring back. And in fact, you'll have you know, this moment of sort of, you know, sort of artificially created large scale unemployment, and everyone will be looking for ways to get as many people back into the workforce as fast as humanly possible. And to the extent that the UBI is seen as sort of a drag on that process, I think you'll end up having, in certain ways, stronger arguments against it. So I think the two are somewhat different. But Ross, that sort of assumes that, you know, that sort of assumes like a relatively rapid bounce back, right? That, you know, the lockdowns are back and now there are jobs and we need people to go take the jobs. But it's not at all clear that there are going to be um, jobs for everybody who lost them, you know, when this thing is over. It does, I mean, a lot of the projections at least suggest a protracted period of economic misery and instability. And so, you know, it's hard to see if you start UBI as a as an emergency measure, you can just see it being sort of renewed because the emergency, it's not, there's not going to be a moment when it's clear to everyone that the emergency is over. Yeah. And I guess that's the argument for if you're a skeptic of UBI in normal time, that's, that's the argument against using UBI as your emergency measure. And it's an argument for um, some version of what other European countries are trying, where essentially you're paying companies to maintain payroll and sort of keep people attached to their jobs. Or it's an argument for, at the very least, what we're doing, which is, you know, we're not doing a UBI. We're doing sort of a, a one-time UBI followed by massively expanded unemployment benefits. There's been a study that's gotten some attention that noted that more than half of Americans under 45 since the dawn of the pandemic have lost a job been put on leave or had their hours significantly reduced. It strikes me that's a lot of people in a huge voting block that we already know from other surveys was less rosy on capitalism and more receptive to socialism, at least as a word, than older Americans were. I mean, what does that bode for politics and elections 5, 10, 15 years from now? Eventually, you're going to have a critical mass in this country for social democracy, unless the country, you know, dissolves to an extent that, you know, kind of functioning social democracy no longer seems conceivable. And so to me, the question is just when, right? You have a generation that's already been radicalized by the Great Recession. 
by the gig economy, by sort of all the indignities of capitalism. And then they're hit by this. And so eventually, so you already had a generation that kind of had gotten a raw deal and had much less faith in capitalism than generations before it. The question is just when they become um, a majority or a critical mass of voters. Ross, I'm betting you don't agree precisely. Not precisely, although I do think that having this, <laughs> I mean, I think having this hammer, um, you know, what we call millennials and Zoomers, um, both groups that, you know, had sort of suffered from the aftermath of the Great Recession, had been slow to sort of do the kinds of things, wealth building, home buying, marrying, having kids that under traditional circumstances, turn Democrats into Republicans. Uh, having this having this come along probably does create, sort of solidify a constituency for social democracy that didn't exist 20 years ago. Um, I guess I come back to where I started. I think that what it sets up then is potentially a sort of debate about, um, you know, what... Bo a debate where both parties might be agreeing that the state should be doing more and the question is, what does that more consist of? Okay, well, for right, for left, for all generations, it's time for our weekly recommendation now, where we suggest something to help take your mind off the news. Michelle, what do you have for us? So there's a lot of people who have been tragically hard hit by this calamity. Um, I'm going to speak to a group of people who are not among the greatest victims, and that is people who have bangs. Um, if you have bangs, you know, you you are kind of, <laughs> you probably have them hanging in your eyes right now, wondering what you should do, contemplating whether you should try to cut them yourself. And you know, as everyone who works on this show knows, I have sort of no manual or technical capacity whatsoever. But I want to tell you that you can cut your own bangs. And the secret to cutting your own bangs is not to cut across, but to cut up, right? So you take them between your fingers and watch a video on this and just sort of cut up into them, um, like really vertically until they until they're the length you want and it goes little by little by little and that is the way to do it and that is one thing that you need not suffer um on, during lockdown well michelle i think that is going to be life-changing for both <laughs> ross and well i mean this is so i'm i'm envious i have the balding man's problem of in an era with no haircuts how do you avoid ending up with what i call the doc brown hairstyle <laughs> where you know i have this the pattern of my baldness means that my hair grows really quickly on both sides of my head, but doesn't just doesn't, you know, grow at all in the center. But can't you just use a clippers or is that what they're called? Like, I mean, I think there's too much of it. I've passed the clipper point. <laughs> I guess. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm looking at your picture now, Frank, for inspiration, right? You you have a very close my my picture has never been it's, inspiration. No, it's, this is you you have I, I think about this a lot. You you've you've gone with the I mean you 
you have more, it looks like you've kept more of your sort of central artery of hair than I have, but you've gone with a very close... My, my central <laughs> a very close. A very you two close. are giving me an. You, you guys are giving me an entirely new follicular. This is, you know, this is what we do here. Um, but yeah, I've never, I've, I've never gone. I, I, I worry that my head is too round, too pumpkin-like, to have a really close cut on top. Frank, what are you going to do with your hair over the next six weeks? Um, <laughs> it's a question, Ross, that keeps me up at night. Um, I, I haven't decided. I need a haircut. I know that much. But the good thing about a quarantine lockdown, whatever you want to call it, is no one but my dog and my dad are looking at me, and they're very non-judgmental. So I'm just going to enjoy this moment of no physical vanity whatsoever and then deal with everything on the far side. So, Michelle, again, your recommendation is? Cut your own bangs and cut them vertically. That's our show this week. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to leave us a voicemail, give us a call at 347-915-4324. You can also email us at argument at nytimes.com. And if you like what you hear, leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. This week's show was produced by James T. Green for Transmitter Media and edited by Sarah Nix. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We also had help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, Paula Schumann, Michele Teodori, and Ian Prasad Philbrick. Our theme was composed by Allison Leighton Brown. Ross and Michelle are taking next week off, but I'll be here with a special episode of The Argument. We'll see you back here next week. Uh, wait one second. Someone's delivering a piece of mail. Someone's delivering some mail to the front stoop, and that... And that. <laughs> That means Regan, sweetheart, leave the nice male person alone. Okay, I think we're done.